morning. How are you all this morning? We're so glad that you have joined us for worship here at Central Baptist Church, uh, that you could be here in this place of welcome and of grace. Um, we're glad to see you here this morning. Whether this has been your home for many years or whether this is your first time here, we want you to know that you're welcome here and that your presence is a blessing to us this morning. You'll find some uh, uh, information cards in the pews in front of you. If you're interested in finding out a little more about Central, um, please uh, take the time to fill one of those out. You can put that in the offering plate as it goes by. You can put it in a box on the sign-up table uh, out in the foyer, and uh, we'll be happy to let you know a little bit more about Central. Sign up for our newsletter and find out what's, what's going on here. Um, I was reminded again this week one of the beautiful things. I know that when we come and we say welcome and everybody's welcome, that you know they, people expect ministers to say that to people and churches to say those things. But this Monday night, we were out at the barn just down the road uh, with some folks from Central. We had a meal together. We hung out. It was a beautiful time. And I'm reminded again that this is not just something that we make up and something that we say, but this is really in the DNA of this place. And I am so grateful to be part of a place where we are welcome, where there is grace for us to be able to rub elbows with good people who are trying to make their way in this world, and we can learn again about the love and the grace of God that is here with us. It was a beautiful time together. Um, we invite you to come out the next time we do one of those get-togethers uh, for a chance to, uh, to make some friends, to catch up with some some old friends too, and to be reminded as I hope that we're reminded again this morning that we are beloved children of God, welcomed into the good and beautiful family of God and in this place this morning. So welcome, let's worship together.
please stand as you are able for the call to worship. Praise the Lord. Please respect the Lord Jesus and delight in following all his commands. Light shines in the darkness for those looking for it. They are quick to be generous, compassionate, and righteous. They are not paralyzed by bad news because they can still find the grace within it. They wait confidently for the Lord to care for them. Such people will not be overcome by evil. They share freely and give generously to those in need. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. The wicked will see this and will grind their teeth in anger. They can never trust in such goodness. But the goodness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. God, you sustain us in our grief. You offer hope in despair. You provide shade from the heat and warmth from the chill. You are our light in the darkness, and to our sins and shortcomings you respond with grace. As we join in adoration of such a wondrous God, we consider what then is required of us. The prophet Micah said that we should act justly and love mercy and walk humbly. Your son reminds us of the commandment to love our neighbor. O oh God, in our response, may we not so much comply 
with requirements and commandments, but may we commit to lives of generosity, compassion, and righteousness, because that is where we will find joy. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please turn and share the peace of Christ with those around you. my excitement and enthusiasm to welcome you all this morning. I did fail to mention that this morning we also welcome our guest preacher Kelly Hale this morning who is an Addie Davis uh, preaching award nominee from BSK and we're so excited that she is here uh, to preach for us this morning and to be in this place. So thank you so much for being here this morning. Kelly, as we continue uh, our series of spiritual practices this morning, I invite you to read responsibly with me the litany that you'll find in your orders of worship. Now when all was darkness, God created light and called it good. The people who once lived in darkness have been given a great light. Christ be our light. Shine in the darkness. Well, I don't know about you, but often my mind is on overdrive. It jumps from one thing to another, back and forth, and sometimes I find myself automatically repeating some negative and unproductive stories about how things have gone in the past or how they might go in the future. And one practice that we might entertain to uh, combat these negative thoughts is maybe to replace these with some more helpful thoughts that point us toward grace and love and acceptance of God. A uh, practice that I have taken up a little more recently is a little more out there for me. I've started write down, writing down a self-affirming mantra to repeat throughout the day, um, something to remind me of who I truly am. And I can't remember if this practice actually began with a suggestion from a therapist or as a prompt in a gratitude journal, but either way, this has become a meaningful practice for me. And I don't say it into a mirror or anything like that. But uh, I do write it down. At the, ver at the beginning, I was fairly averse to this because I feel like the theology that I inherited focused a little more on the sinfulness of humanity rather than our belovedness. But no matter where our theologies lean, I think that we can agree that God is love and God loves us dearly. So often I'll write down, I am a beloved child of God, welcomed into God's family. Many times throughout the day I'll forget all about this, but sometimes, every once in a while, these words will rise up again in the middle of the day, and I can think about, again, what I believe that God thinks of me, 
and trust again in God's presence and that I am beloved. There are other practices of repetition that feel akin to this to me, like the practice of centering prayer. Much like focused breathing that we talked about at the beginning, we can bring our minds again and again back to the simple presence of God with us. Richard Rohr, who's written the book that we're uh, reading right now, Everything Belongs, says this about centering prayer. Centering prayer is simply sitting in silence, open to God's love and your love for God. This prayer is beyond thoughts. It brings your relationship with God to a deeper level than conversation, to pure communion. Now, this may be difficult to just sit without thoughts in communion, so sometimes we use words like love or peace or other phrases that might help direct our focus in centering prayer. Our Eastern Orthodox uh, has, uh, Christianity has given us the familiar prayer of the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. As we repeat these prayers, whatever they are, we can continually coax our attentions back to the presence of God with us, reminding us of the ever-flowing grace and continual presence of God. So today, we'll take a few moments, and maybe you want to choose something to repeat for yourself. Maybe you'd like to choose a word or a phrase, a short passage of scripture, or the word love or peace. Or maybe you'll choose a phrase that reframes those false narratives and celebrates your identity in Christ. I am a child of God. Maybe you'd like to pray a prayer for illumination. Open my eyes or open my heart. But in this few moments this morning, let's take some time. You can choose how you would like to engage in this activity. And let's be open together to the presence of God with us now. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your presence in us, among us, and beyond us. We offer these prayers and our thanks to you. In the name of Jesus, amen.
Let's pray again, please, shall we? Dear God, we are grateful for your blessings that overflow, that keep on coming, even sometimes when we don't know that they're there. We're grateful for the opportunity to be in your presence, to be with those that we love, to be with those that love us, but mostly to be with you who love us and you whom we love. We pray, God, that you will bless this time, that you will bless these tithes and offerings, that they will be used in productive ways to let people know there is a place for them in the kingdom of God. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. I have to give the boys in the booth heads up. I want to say something, or we're, we're going to. Christy and I are going to say something. I usually, obviously, I let the anthems speak for themselves always, and this one certainly would do the same. But I want to share a little bit about this one uh, because of some importance to me and importance to uh, you know my experience personally. Uh, I encountered this anthem 32 years ago when I first became your minister of music. 32 years. Can you imagine? Of course, it hasn't been full 32, but mostly 32 years. But I found this anthem then is one that Hunter had bought, who was the previous full-time minister of music before me. And as I learned this and, and started reading through the text of this, it became more and more meaningful to me, the words that were there of Albert Schweitzer's words at the, and the, really the epilogue of his book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And as I grow older and as I go through more things in my life, I find that that part at the end about the toils and the conflicts and the sufferings which we shall pass through in his fellowship and as an ineffable mystery, we shall learn in our own experience 
who he is. I'm finding as my experiences become more and more complicated that I'm finding that I learn more and more about who Jesus is. And I guess that's the blessing of it, isn't it? So I wanted to share that with you. And the words are printed in your bulletin. But since we also happen to have a German scholar in our congregation, I thought it might be interesting also to allow our German scholar to read for you how these words sound in German as they were originally written. And then the choir will sing them. So Christy is our German scholar. So please, Christy. Als ein Unbekannter und Namenloser kommt Jesus zu uns. Wie er am Gestelle des Sees an jene Männer, die nicht wussten, wie er war, herantrat. Er sagt dasselbe Wort, du, aber folge mir nach, und stellt vor uns die Aufgaben, die er in unserer Zeit lösen muss. Er gebietet, und denjenigen, welche ihm gehorchen, weisen und unweisen, wird er sich offenbaren in dem, was sie in seiner Gemeinschaft im Frieden, Wirken, Kämpfen und Leiden erleben dürfen. Und aus ein unaussprechliches Geheimnis werden sie erfahren, wer er ist.
morning. Um, it is my joy this morning to introduce our guest preacher, Kelly Hale. Uh, before I do so, uh, however, I want to take a moment to introduce why we are here doing this in this moment. It's called the Addie Davis Preaching Award nomination. This is the award that Kelly was nominated for uh, by the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, uh, where I work on the faculty. It is a faculty nomination, um, and we are also in the middle of the Addie Davis Month of Preaching, where Baptist churches in, uh, around the United States have been encouraged uh, to showcase, welcome, invite, celebrate, train and encourage, whatever words you would like to have, um, but, but to do so on behalf of women as uh, preachers in their pulpits during this month. Um, granted, uh, I, I also, though, we've done this. You may not know that this church does this. We, we do this, Central Baptist Church. Um, it's been several years since we started doing this, um, and since the national group, the Baptist Women in Ministry, has continued to encourage and push this. So I wanted to take a moment to sort of explain again and help us remember why it is that we have these types of months. It is not obviously um, months, uh, something to do just to check off our boxes, like woohoo, the diversity token, we did that. Uh, no, it is not that sort of thing. It is not um, even because February is especially feminine sort of month. I mean, it's a good month. You know, we could have picked a different one. Um, but I wanted to tell you a little bit about who Addie Davis was and who the Baptist Women in Ministry is and why it is that we at Baptist Seminary of Kentucky take this so seriously and therefore are so incredibly grateful that you have opened uh, this church and the pulpit to our nominee, uh, Kelly, this morning. Um, Addie Davis grew up in, in the South, North Carolina. She was born in 1917, and in 1964, she was ordained as the first fully ordained Southern Baptist pastor who was a female. Now, there were other Baptist women ordained before her in other traditions. There are lots of women or, uh, given license to preach before her, but she was very significant in Southern Baptist life uh, for being a fully ordained person, although she, at that moment in time, only found pastor positions in the Northeast among our Northern Baptist, American Baptist brethren. So she did most of her work in Vermont and Rhode Island. But what she did during her time was to continue to be the senior pastor of those congregations, and she herself was an excellent preacher and an excellent pastoral care leader. Um, and she shaped and guided and mentored many men and also lots of women, Southern American Baptist after her, to train them and support them in their calls in their, uh, to ministry. Um, and so Baptist Women in Ministry is now a national organization uh, that gives this, uh, that supports and promotes this month of preaching and they also promote these awards um, to continue to advocate for more opportunities for women to practice so that they might excel at preaching. 
I know that we all get up here on this stage and look very charismatic, Mark Johnson and Aaron and Charles and I and other people that have come up here, and look like we just rolled out of bed knowing how to preach. Uh, but it takes a lot of practice. Um, it takes a lot of intention to try to excel at it. And um, so these awards are ways to advocate for women to be given those opportunities to practice, to be given the support that they need uh, to excel at preaching, and also to try to get financial money. Um, there's this, this award if uh, people that win on the national level get quite a hefty uh, sum to help them with their studies. So the Baptist Women in Ministry is all in on this advocacy and support so that women can practice and excel, and that we also can celebrate uh, the female preaching voice in our worship setting, the different points of view that diverse people bring into our pulpit. Um, it is something that maybe one day we can just celebrate as a matter of course, that people of all shapes and sizes and differences can come and preach to us, but for right now, we are being very, very aware and remembering how important it is to uh, celebrate and bring forth our females, our women among us to, uh, to preach. So that's about why we're here today in this moment. Um, Kelly Hale, I'm very pleased to introduce to you all. Kelly Hale um, is not a native of Lexington, but has lived here for uh, several uh, years, almost three decades. Um, she is one of our students at the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, and I may say she is very accomplished, and was from the moment she entered uh, our seminary sphere. She had already done several years of work as uh, the mission coordinator and other sort of ministry uh, work in the life of local congregations. Um, she and her husband, Rick, have three uh, adult daughters and one son-in-law. Um, she currently works for a local nonprofit called Surgery on Sunday. Um, maybe those of you in Women in Mission would like to have her back to just talk about what that nonprofit is and the am amazing work. She actually did work this morning at Sermon on Sunday with her volunteers before coming and preaching to us. Kelly is currently pursuing her Master of Divinity degree with us at Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, and I am delighted that she is here to preach for us uh, because I have found her um, during my chance to get to know her at school, um, not only, well, to be accomplished and smart and intelligent and excellent in all her ways and gifts, uh, she is also a deep listener of scripture to um, search for the heart of God to hear what Albert Schweitzer said in the, the one who says, follow me. Um, and it also delights me that she has chosen to us to read from a translator who also was a deep listener of scripture, Eugene Peterson and his translation of the message. So we welcome Kelly, uh, we welcome her into the midst and into our space as she uh, comes and preaches and witnesses to us of God's good gifts in the call to be ordinary. Now, uh, it is time to read from our gospel this morning. Uh, our gospel is from the book of Matthew, chapter five, verses 13 through 20. 
Uh, this may sound new to you, a new perspective from a different translation. As I said, this is from the message. Let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. Don't suppose for a minute that I have come to demolish the scriptures, either God's law or the prophets. I am not here to demolish, but to complete. I am going to put it all together, pull it all together in a vast panorama. God's law is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. Long after the stars burn out and earth wears out, God's law will be alive and working. Trivialize even the smallest item in God's law, and you will only have trivialized yourself. But take it seriously. Show the way for others, and you will find honor in the kingdom. Unless you do far better than the Pharisees in the matters of right living, you won't know the first thing about entering the kingdom of heaven. The gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. I want to thank you all for having me here today. It's kind of a surprise for me, first of all, to be preaching. It wasn't anything I ever expected to do. And then also, it's just an honor to be here at this church this morning. One of my goals will be to keep myself awake. I've been at work since 5.30 this morning, and to keep you awake, too. So um, when I was invited, when Dr. Levins called me or texted me a couple of weeks ago and uh, asked me to preach this morning, the first thing I did, of course, was think, what am I going to preach on? And so I went to the lectionary. Um, if you're familiar with the lectionary, it's a, a different group of readings for different Sundays. And Lo and behold, the Old Testament scripture for today was Isaiah 58. Now, I love this passage, and I wanted an opportunity to preach on it, um, so I was pretty excited. I wanted to think about what God has to say to us today from this Old Testament passage about justice. Then I thought, this could be a pretty ordinary sermon for you for this particular church, because I know you hear a lot about justice, and I might not have anything to add. And then I decided it was okay, I was gonna preach on it anyway, because I don't think we've come fully into the kingdom of God. 
where God's justice and not your justice or my justice or some skewed worldly justice reigns, but where God's justice reigns. So even if you've heard this before, it might not hurt to hear it again, however ordinary it is for you. We're also in the church year, in the time known as ordinary time. It's not Advent, it's not Easter, it's not Lent, it's just plain old ordinary time. And that's a time to grow and to do the work of the church and to focus on the teaching of Jesus. So an ordinary sermon it is. Earlier, we read from Matthew 5, a portion from the Sermon on the Mount, and it was in part about salt. And what is more ordinary than salt? I would imagine that every household here has at least one salt shaker in it. So at my home, I wanted to see how many salt shakers we have, and we have 30, at least 30 salt shakers. They all have matching pepper shakers. There are seasonal ones, there are quirky ones, there are plain ones, there are fancy ones. But I also found a dish of kosher salt, a jar of salt that used just for baking, seven kinds of specialty salt, and two salt grinders. So at our house, and as in many houses, salt is ubiquitous. Um, it's in our cooking and it's in our food. And it's so ordinary, we usually only notice the lack of it. Any of you who are on a salt-free or low-sodium diet, you know what I'm talking about. Once in a while, I'll buy some low-sodium soup, and I just can't eat it. Even adding salt to it doesn't really help. The salt just needs to be embedded in it to make it taste good. And I think that that is what Jesus is calling his followers to be in Matthew 5 embedded and ubiquitous and ordinary in bringing the justice of God to the world. I read an article about the ministry of Jesus as portrayed in the Gospel of Luke. And the author points out that the ministry of Jesus is firmly rooted in the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, are Jesus' scriptures. And if they matter to Jesus, they should matter to us. And in the Hebrew scriptures, the theme of justice for the poor and healing for the sick and the loosening of chains of those in bondage comes through at every turn of the page. And so Jesus, relying on these scriptures, begins his ministry by proclaiming the words of Isaiah and saying, that he has come to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for prisoners, sight for the blind, and release from bondage. Jesus, all the way through his ministry, shows a preferential op option for the poor and for the downtrodden. And it was just his ordinary mode of existence. He preferred and ministered to the poor. But he was also fulfilling the scriptures in doing that. So the article I read goes on to say that there's a deep connection between the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Micah and Jesus. And the author writes, Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophetic promise, inaugurates justice as part of the kingdom of God. As he calls people into the kingdom, he insists 
that they come in humble faith and join him in working to establish justice, especially in regard to the traditional Old Testament vision of helping widows, the poor, and outcasts. The author goes on to say that Christians have to realize that both the Old and the New Testaments emphasize justice and that a call to follow Jesus is a call to confront injustice with serious action that brings about justice in our community. But I don't think I'm telling you anything you don't already know. God wants his followers to pursue justice in the world. But the thing is, we don't always do it, do we? Let's look at our text this morning from Isaiah. The text is written to God's chosen people. It's written to his followers. They're very religious. They claim to seek his face. They go to worship. They make a big deal out of fasting. But God is not at all pleased with him. Here is Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 through 9 from the message. God says to the prophet, Shout, a full-throated shout. Hold nothing back. A trumpet blast shout. I want you to tell my people what's wrong with their lives. Tell my family, Jacob, what their sins are. They're busy, busy, busy at worship, and they love studying all about me. To all appearances, they're a nation of right-living people, law-abiding and God-honoring. My people ask me, what's the right thing to do? They love having me on their side. But they also complain. They ask, why, God, do we fast and you don't look our way? Why do we humble ourselves and you don't even notice? Well, says God, I'll tell you why. The bottom line on your fast days is profit. You drive your employees much too hard. You fast, but at the same time, you bicker and fight. You fast, but you swing a mean fist. The kind of fasting you do won't get your prayers off the ground. Do you think this is the kind of fast day I'm after? A day to show off humility? To put on a long, pious face and parade around solemnly in black? Do you call that fasting a fast day that I, God, would like? No, God says, this is the kind of fast day I'm after. To break the chains of injustice, get rid of exploitation in the workplace, free the oppressed, and cancel debts. What I'm interested in seeing you doing is sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering, ill-clad, and being available for your families. Do this, and the lights will turn on, and your lives will turn around at once. Your righteousness will pave the way. The God of glory will secure your passage. Then when you pray, God will answer. You'll call out for help, and I'll say, here I am. So this prophecy, or this exhortation we find in Isaiah is part of a larger text, and you can read it in full in Isaiah chapters 56 through 59. And throughout this passage, 
the prophet is telling the people who faithfully observe the elements of the covenant between Yahweh and the people. That's what he's, who he's talking to. And these elements encompass observing justice and righteousness and observing the Sabbath, observing temple worship, and observing sacrifices and prayer. And those are the basic elements of what Yahweh's covenant with the Israelites is. And notice, it doesn't just include worship and prayer and sacrifice, but it includes observing the justice of God as well. So this oracle was probably composed 5th and 6th century BC. Uh, the Jewish people had been conquered by Babylon. They'd been taken off to Babylon. They lived there for about 70 years. The Persians came in, and they conquered Babylon. And Cyrus the Great said to the Jewish people, you can go back to Jerusalem. So the Jewish people were really glad to do that. And they wanted to rebuild Jerusalem and they wanted to rebuild the temple. But it was a really, really difficult time for them. They were harassed on all sides. They were back home, but things weren't the way they had been. And they were facing persecution and trials. Their rebuild was not going well. People would come back in and knock down the walls, and it was just a very hard time. They couldn't understand it. Why was God allowing so much hardship? They were rebuilding his temple. They were rebuilding his city. So they began to fast, and they began to mourn, and they cried out to God, and the people wanted God to hear them. And fasting and mourning was the God-approved way for God to listen to them. But here is the ironic thing. While they were fasting and praying, and mourning to beg relief from their oppression, they persisted in oppressing their fellow human beings. Um, if they took a day off to work, if they, they took their day off of work to fast and pray, they made their workers work overtime uh, so they could make up for their time off. And while they walked around with long faces and solemn clothes, they didn't take the food that they were missing out on and give it to hungry people. They were just letting their workers go hungry. And they might tear their clothes and put ashes on their head, but they had clothes to wear the next day. They had some new clothes while other people were going around without warm winter coats. And their fasting even led them to fighting. Um, I wondered if they were hangry and they just needed one of those giant Snickers bars like you saw at the Super Bowl commercial. <clears throat> But how could God relieve their suffering when they were refusing to relieve and were even causing suffering to their fellow citizens? They were increasing oppression and injustice rather than alleviating it. So now we're back to Jesus. And he was facing a similar thing in the first century. They, the Jews were under the oppressive Roman Empire but the religious leaders of the day, they were still taking their covenant with Yahweh very seriously. But their actions didn't reflect the justice and righteousness of God. Um, that was what's at the heart of the covenant with God. Do you remember the story of the widow who gave her last two pennies to the temple? We've all heard that Sunday school story, right? 
And we praise her because she's so faithful to give the last two pennies. But I think if we look a little more closely at that story, we might find that Jesus is wondering why this widow in Israel has so little when the rich are all around her. Why isn't anyone caring for her? And why is she compelled to put her last two pennies into the already full coffers of the temple? Is she going to eat when she leaves the temple? I don't think so. But all those rich people around her, they're going to eat. In the story, as Mark tells it, Jesus leaves the temple. He predicts its demise. He says, not one stone will be left upon another. Again, in Mark, he re Jesus reproaches the religious of the day. They say they're tithing so they don't have to take care of their parents. That's not what, what God's justice is all about. Jesus isn't saying that the underlying religious practices are bad, but there has to be more than an outward show of religion. When justice is missing from religious practices, the religious practice is hollow. So we've seen that the witness of Jesus is rooted in the prophets and the Hebrew scriptures. The justice and righteousness of God is what Jesus brings to humankind, and it's what Jesus expects his disciples to convey to the world. They are to be salt and light, the ordinary, everyday things that makes it possible to see and to eat and to live. Justice is what should ordinarily happen wherever Jesus' followers are. So we're back to being ordinary. And so I began to think about and kind of imagine, so maybe imagine with me what it might look like if all of Christ's followers began not to stop their religious observances, like you're doing this morning, coming to church and praying and studying the Bible, but what if they imbued their daily lives with God's idea of justice? What if every day, ordinarily and regularly, they fed the hungry, they loosed the bonds of oppression, they paid fair wages to their employees, and they housed the homeless. So I've seen close up and personal what it looks like when Jesus' followers are housing the homeless. My parents, from my earliest remem remembrances, housed the homeless. I was in kindergarten when the first foster children started coming to our home, and I wasn't surprised to see a new brother or sister on the front porch with my mom after school. They gave love and shelter to children who had nowhere else to go. And it wasn't just children. I can't begin to count how many missionaries and foreign students and visitors from Texas and refugees have lived with my parents over the years. One time, my brother, he was out in Lexington. He saw a homeless woman and her daughter, and he brought them home. And they lived with my parents for several weeks until they found the appropriate resources for them. And at their church, if anyone needs a place to live, they call my parents. Somebody said to me, 
who's living with your parents now? Just like, that's the normal thing. And I'll tell you, it is a salt-free Thanksgiving if there are no visitors who don't have anywhere else to go at our home. So what if everybody lived that kind of justice out? Imagine with me for a minute that all the Christ followers in Lexington were living out their call to justice and mercy. I want to think about what would somebody from, say, Louisville think? So maybe this Louisvillian might gather a group around and ask, what's it like to live in Lexington? So maybe there's a waitress in the group, and she says that she's paid a living wage, and she doesn't have to work two jobs because the Christian fast food restaurant owner is fasting from the big profits he makes. It enables her to be home in the evenings with her child, and she can help him with his homework. Furthermore, the restaurant owner lives in the same neighborhood as she does because, again, he's fasting from his big profits, and their kids go to the same school, and it's a great school because everybody has some time to spend with their kids. There's an African-American man in this group and he, being interviewed, and he also lives in the same neighborhood, and he said he was able to purchase this home in this good area because his banker is a Christian who desires to overcome injustice of 400 years of slavery, black codes, and Jim Crow laws, and redlining. And as a result, his children are also in the same school and they're thriving. Another woman in this group that the Louisvillian is interviewing says that she is recovering from substance abuse disorder. And she relates how the local church has helped her break the oppressive chains of addiction by being a place to make new friendships and being fully accepted as a member of that community. Our Louisvillian friend is amazed and just says, how, how can this be? It's not like that in Louisville. And the group from Lexington says, it's no big deal. It's just ordinary in Lexington because that's what the Christians do. It's like salt. We just take it for granted. But if it weren't there, you would know about it. So that is what both Jesus and Isaiah insist upon. The humble faith into which we are invited by Christ must be undergirded and upheld by the practice of God's justice, righteousness, and mercy to our fellow humans. In fact, without practicing justice and mercy and righteousness, the religious practices are void and ineffective. The opposite is true as well, though. God desires that we are in relation with God. And we cannot show God's mercy without connection to God. And that is what Jesus offers us, a connection to God's self that allows us to participate in God's justice for ourselves and for the world. We are to become ordinary salt shakers, ordinary seasoning. God's justice should be the thing that is ordinarily practiced by the church. So go out into the world and shake some salt. Thank you, Kelly.
There's not too many sermons. There cannot be too many sermons about justice. There cannot be too many times we're reminded that who we are in a ubiquitous way is ordinarily who we are as people of justice, people of salt and light, that it's not special. It is to be who we are. And what a challenge she put before us this morning. So now I'm going to invite you to stand and sing the hymn of invitation, and I'll be down front to greet anyone who would like to share anything with me. Please stand as we sing. seated just for a second. I have a couple of announcements. First of all, again, say thank you, Kelly, for being here this morning. Thanks for preaching. Kelly will be out front uh, or out back or whichever direction that is out there by Aaron 
after the service and please go by and greet her and encourage her as she does something very important with her life as being a minister of the gospel. Male or female, that is your calling and we affirm you in that today. Uh, Mark is still recovering from his, his, um, his surgery. He's doing, we're not exactly sure. He's sort of torn between wanting to do more and being told not to do more, that sort of in-between state that he's in right now. So we'll see where, when he shows up or where he shows up. We don't know for sure yet. I know if it were his idea, he'd be here this morning with us, though. Uh, Charles had to go be with Edith this morning, who's uh, not feeling well, and he and, he and Michelle are, are dealing with her this morning, so that's why I'm doing this part of the service. Just a couple of announcements for you, just so, so for your uh, remembering. First of all, the services for Don Flynn, uh, there will be a brief service of committal out at, uh, at uh, Count Nelson tomorrow at 2.30 p.m. if someone would like to go there. Youth movie night at Charles's house. It is still on. As far as we know, there's no, that has not been changed, so you guys be aware that it will be happening as is. Uh, there are many announcements that you have, but also please remember that there's a Habitat building, build starting up in March and at the sign-up tab, sign table out in the, out in the lobby there, uh, there's an opportunity for you to sign up to participate in a Habitat for Humanity bill. So, and we hope that you take that opportunity to, again, make caring and make justice a part of your normal everyday, what you do, who you are. So please stand for the benediction. And it'll be simply this, as you depart this place, go with the full knowledge that you go with God and that God goes with you, that who you are is infused by God's spirit, what you do is infused by God's grace, how you live your life is infused with God's love. Take that gift, do with it, become salt and light. Amen.